0: Hello and welcome to Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson, thanks as always for hitting play. Now, following the success of The Great Rock Stories Volume 1 episode that I put out in December, I thought it was time to follow it up with Volume 2, because Volume 1 is in the top 10 most downloaded episodes of the whole series so far, which is fantastic. So on today's episode, I've got seven rock stars, including two Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, and they're going to be telling some wonderful stories. You'll hear about how it felt to get to number one, how one song and an image became a blessing and a curse. You'll hear from a band that Guns N' Roses adored and followed around on tour before they got famous. A song written for a legendary frontman as a tribute to one of the most iconic drummers of all time. How a British group were ignored in the UK and found fame in the US first. And much more. But we're going to start with Joe Lynn Turner, legendary rock singer, of course, probably best known for being the lead singer with Richie Blackmore's group Rainbow. It was during his time that the group really hit their commercial heights. Things like I Surrender was a big hit in the UK, reaching number three on the charts. I while songs like Stone Cold, Stone Cold and Street of Dreams. Hit number one and number two on the mainstream rock charts in the US. Now, I interviewed Joe back in January 2021, and he told me some fantastic stories about his early childhood, then seeing some of the world's biggest and best bands touring around him. His early success with Fandango, being recruited by Blackmore for Rainbow, the incredible story behind Street of Dreams. Working with Ingve Malmsteen and so much more, but this story that I'm going to play to you now is him explaining how he became the lead singer of his favourite group of all time, and with its most iconic lineup. Here you go. This is Joe Lynn Turner. Now, after that time with Rainbow, you, you did a lot of diverse projects, didn't you? Your solo stuff, bits of TV and radio. You you worked in the studio with some incredible names like so Billy Joel and and Cher and Mick Jones from Foreigner as well. And that's another kind of. Almost little <laughs> coincidental moment because you almost joined Foreigner before right. the big thing to Purple happened, didn't you?
1: Uh, that was an amazing time because uh, because Michael Bolton they turned me on to Jingles. Yeah. We yeah. were at a club one night <laughs> where Billy Joe Bon Jovi everybody was there. It's a big party at the China Club, you know. But then Mick was there at the same party, and he said, "Look, Lou's kind of, Graham's kind of like moving away from it." And it, I went up to their rehearsal room and rehearsed with them a couple of days and um when lou heard about it he came back to the band and that was quite interesting because then i got a phone call from rick wills the bass player and he said look i know it didn't work out far enough he said but bad company's looking for a singer <laughs> wow my favorite singer in the whole world was paul rogers paul rogers brilliant yeah. without yeah. shadow of a doubt you know i mean he's got all the soul and all the chops and everything else he's just brilliant so I was like, I, I don't know, but I, I can stylistically fill those shoes. So that was interesting. And that lasted for about a day because then right after that, I got a call from Deep Purple saying, come to audition for Deep Purple. And I my head was spinning. Remember this time, Joe, because it's never going to come again, you know? All I can say is I think I made the right choice only because <laughs> Purple was my number one favorite band and I had a history with Rainbow and all this and and that's a whole other long story. went up there and just walked in and he started playing. Joe started singing it. And then Joe, I'll never forget, started playing his piano riff, which later became the "Cut Runs Deep on the Slaves of Masters album. And I made up the chorus right there on the spot. It's the exact same chorus I'm singing. What about the heartache? What about this? What about that? What about the And that was it. And they all went, you're in the band. Okay. okay. Here we go again. But Paul Rogers and I became friends through that in, in a crazy way. And uh, I actually gave a couple of my demos to him for the law, which I actually still have to this day. So that was a remarkable time in my life where that was happening.
0: It was, because as you said right at the beginning of the interview, Beat Purple were your number one band. And there's you with the classic lineup. It's Blackmore, it's Glover, it's it's John Lord, it's, it's Ian Pace. And you—that to me was
1: was the greatest honor I could have. It was that lineup. I mean, I played with Don Airey and all that and and so on. But I mean, with John O'Keefe and rest is all great, incredible guys, and uh, loved them. And I think "Slaves and Masters" stands the test of time. I really believe that the timing of that record threw people off. Music was changing and grunge was coming out, alternative, this and that. But Pacey had said something recently, which uh, the journalist friend of mine sent me, and that, and that was wonderful. Uh, I'll paraphrase it again, but he basically said Joe was the glue that held that configuration of Purple together. Because without him there and doing that record, Richie would have failed and we would have probably never done Perfect Strangers and so on and so on and so forth. You know, and I thought that that was a great compliment that he had said. Absolutely. Because yeah. that really sort of put the whipped cream on the, you know, and the cherry on top of the whipped cream. Because <laughs> to be able to do that, to be able to be the glue that kind of held that configuration together so that they would move on and do what they're doing to the point now, that's yes. an incredibly important position. So yes. uh, I feel very rewarded about that. What's remarkable is what richie said you know because we talked about the whole Fame earlier um and of course he didn't show up but he mentioned in a remark and i was emailed well actually carol stevens his manager emailed me his remarks that he had put into some some magazine and he said that i should receive an award for my work on slaves and masters mm-hmm. i thought that was like wow big respect
0: yeah,
1: big respect
0: Joe Lynn Turner. If you haven't already, then please do go back and give that whole episode a listen. It's the second most listened to episode out of my whole series. It's fantastic. That's on episode 14 definitely check it out. Right, next up, let's hear from our first Rock and Roll Hall of Famer of the episode, Steve Hackett. He is one of the most revered guitarists of his generation. His work, primarily as part of Genesis, is legendary, as is his playing on some of the greatest prog albums ever. Rolling Stone magazine ranked both Selling England by the Pound and The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway in the top 10 best prog rock albums of all time. Now, when I spoke to him, he told me some wonderful tales about his spirituality, funny stories from his autobiography, being served at a market store by a young Freddie Mercury, and of course, about his time in Genesis, which takes us to this story. Now, here Steve talks about how he joined the band, and his frustrations and difficulties that led him to quitting Genesis, despite all the success after just seven years. Your advert in Melody Maker saying you're an imaginative guitarist, writer, seeking involvement with musicians determined to strive beyond existing stagnant musical forms. Now, that's a very confident advert that you put out there, one that Peter Gabriel was intrigued enough to to, to read and, and get in touch with you about, to, to ask you to join Genesis. Tell us about that, little, that little period of your time then when you joined the band.
2: In those days, the Melody Maker was the paper. It was the go-to paper. If you wanted a gig, you wanted to work with other musicians. Uh, I left school at 16, and I really uh, concentrated very hard. So five years of ads, my ads started out, first of all, with uh, blues, guitarist, harmonica player, Seeks Work. Oof, very basic, didn't really get me anywhere. Five years later, you know, the, the ads were becoming very specific, and, and that was the most outrageous, the, the, um, <laughs> the thing that sounded. If it sounded confident, yeah, Peter Gabriel phoned me up, I did the audition with with Genesis first of all, just with Peter Gabriel and and Tony Banks, and they seemed to like what I what I was doing. And um, along with my brother, we were playing things to them. Uh, they seemed to embrace it all, and um, I, I was very lucky to find them. I think you know, I think it was a, a lucky combination where you've got two teams of people coming together. I think my predecessor in Genesis was largely responsible for holding the band together and uh, coming up with a lot of the really exotic songs they did before I joined, Anthony Phillips. And, and we're great pals to this day. And um, we sometimes record together. But here's what, you know, they were big shoes to fill. Don't forget, they'd been at school together. So there was this history and a celebration of what he brought to the band. And so I brought as many ideas as I could to the band. Not all of them were embraced. Some of them were, many were rejected. Sometimes I would bring back the same idea the following year and we would turn it into a song and one of them became our first hit single. So it's very difficult working within a team. I think that uh, especially if the team has existed and they've known each other to some extent since they were 11 years old, they practically had their own language. You know, it's like, you know, it's got its own set of rules. It's got its own language. So um, I found it quite intimidating at first. It was thrilling and appalling in in equal measure. What have I got to do to get an idea across before I get shouted down? So the term "gentleman hoodlums was uh, invented for that band. People were trying to unseat you from your horse quite a lot of the time. So uh, if I'd realised quite how competitive it was going to be, I, I probably would have come in with more guns blasting. Well, these are my terms and conditions if you want to... <laughs>
0: It's it's funny you mentioned the word competitive there because that's that's something I was thinking of straight away as soon as you started talking. It's a very larger than life characters as well, aren't they? Um yeah. but uh, during your time there, you released some incredible albums, some some albums that looked back and remembered so fondly and groundbreakingly yeah. uh, today. And, and one which you released um, the the live version of it when you toured recently as well, Selling England by the Pound. Selling England by the Pound. Do you still personally love that album?
2: I do. I, I love the album, and I love so much of the work that we did together. I think it was a fabulous band, uh, an incredible collection of brain children. It was quite the team, and of course, most people have gone their own way and done things separate. There's Occasionally, it reconvenes, um, but I, I doubt that, that I will be involved with any of that, even though I will be up for it. I think there will be a resistance, just because um, I think whatever Mike and Tony I think their idea is whatever they can control, they would do. But, you know, that controlling interest is not going to be resigned or even, um, you know, it's like loosening the reins just for a while. It isn't going to happen. So it's the reason I left. I, I, I didn't want to to remain employed in a band that I think I was supposed to be a full-blown membrane, uh, only to come up against the brick walls.
0: Steve Hackett there. If you want to hear the full episode, the full interview, then check out episode 13 of Vintage Rock Pod now next we're going to hear from one of the few successful hard rock female vocalists of the 80s a canadian singer who went multi-platinum in canada and had hit records across europe too she's still got a massive following in europe especially in places like sweden now i'm talking about lee aaron she told me about how difficult it was as a woman in the industry at the time grueling tours falling out of love with music about going bankrupt and then bouncing back into the world of jazz but in this clip i'm going to play you she discussed is the song that she's most famous for and the image that went with it Metal Queen Here we go This is Lee Aaron your first couple of albums, Lee Aron Project, but then the first one that kind of went big and, and broke for you was Metal Queen, wasn't it, in 1984? And then that name has kind of stuck with you ever since, hasn't it?
3: Yeah, it's sort of like a blessing and a <laughs> and a curse. It's sort of an a bit of an albatross as well as a... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I went through a period in my career where I was very anti-Metal Queen. I didn't even really want to play the song. And I, But I'll tell you the reason why is because in terms of public perception of me and who I was as, a, as an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Uber rock fans that really, really got it, saw that video and that image as a, what it was initially meant to be, which was a symbol of female empowerment, a symbol of good triumphing over mm-hmm. evil. So again, for the Uber fans, I think that they, they got it, right? But for um, a lot of the other public, you know, metal queen, you know, the the perception was just that I was this, you know, hard rocking chick that that was the lifestyle I was leading that, you Mm -hmm. know, I was all about, you know, swords and loincloths and metal and bikers and, (laughs) you know, and my actual life couldn't really have been further from the truth. You know, I was a very serious musician. I, um, Wrote my own songs. I was involved in the production of most of my records. In fact, I've produced every one of my own albums since the year 2000. And um, I was very, uh, I was just upset with the sort of public perception baggage that went with that image. And uh, I was trying to distance myself from it. You know, nowadays, I'd like to think that, you know, the world has come full circle and, you know, there's... That, that doesn't exist anymore, but you know, So yeah, I mean, I've been encouraged to wear the crown with pride.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, and so you should. And you talk there, I mean, that's something that I I really do like. You're a proper musician, you're a proper songwriter, your credits are all over the albums, you're involved in everything like that. You're not just a puppet who is given songs to sing and pushed on a stage and given a wardrobe or anything like that. And that's what's really, that's the the, the reason I really like your music and and everything you've been involved with. So that's always been a standout for me. But just touching on on that first album, Metal Queen, that broke big. Um, When you're in the, the studio recording, obviously it was your second album, so you've been there, you've done that sort of. Thing, but when you were writing it and when you were laying down the tracks, did you have a feeling that this was going to be something that was going to catch on? This was going to be the one that was going to send you big?
3: Um, I don't know that I ever thought that or knew that. I, I mean, I'm always excited about my latest recording. I always feel that the most recent things that I've done are the best things that I've done. I think a lot of artists uh, feel that way. Um, I, I think that when, yeah, you know, when we wrote that album, and we had um, some of the singles from that album, Shake It Up. I'm just trying to think, Lady of the Darkest Night, Metal Queen. You know, when we were hearing those songs back in the studio, I think we, we knew we had something special that wasn't like anything that any of the other women were doing at the time, right? But um, did we expect it to break in the way that it did? I, I, no, I don't think so. But the timing was good for us because it was right at the inception Mm-hmm. Of MTV and much music, yep. and we had done this video that had obviously fire and brimstone and very strong images, and um, <laughs> it was it was just good timing because if you were doing something visual, you know it was um, a good time in music industry history. history to be doing that because it was just at the beginning of people creating visuals to go along with the music if you remember yeah. at that time in the early 80s so yeah we put the video out and instantly it was on heavy rotation on much music
0: such a fantastic guest liar in there from episode 17. So, from Canada, the next stop on this episode is to Scotland. Pete Agnew, he is the ever present bass player with the band Nazareth. Now, Nazareth had huge success in the 70s and 80s with singles like Hair of the Dog or Son of a Bitch, as we most know it, uh, Broken Down Angel, This Flight Tonight, and of course, their version of Love Hurts, which went to number one around the world, including Canada, New Zealand, the Netherlands, and Norway, where it was number one for 14 weeks. And I believe it still holds the title as the top single of all time in Norway, remaining on their charts for over a year, 61 weeks to be precise. Now, in this clip, you'll hear about their connection with Guns N' Roses. Yes, the guys in Guns N' Roses were huge fans of Nazareth, as Pete explains. The other story I've gotta ask you about is Axel Rose and, and Guns N' Roses. And he, he asked you guys to play at his wedding, didn't he? And then uh, well, what, what was what was going on there?
4: And I don't think he fancied Dan coming along to sing Love Hurts, but as la- as Dan said, I think uh, the, the length of Love Hurts la- would have lasted longer than the marriage. <laughs> so it didn't, it didn't really it was no we couldn't do it because we were touring at the time, you know. But um I Axel's a big he's a big Dan fan, you know. And uh, the band were good they were great. I remember when they started out, uh, they were young guys Guns and Roses, they used to come and see us. We played in California. Uh, there was one time we did six shows in California and they came to every one of them, you know, in nice. different towns, they, in different cities. They kind of followed us around. And then they were big, big fans. And then, uh, then they made that album. It just went crazy. In fact, Manny went to produce that album for a while. He went out there for a couple of weeks to be, after, at the end of the day, I think they ended up having about seven producers <laughs> on the album. But Manny came back after oh, about two weeks and he said he never, ever managed to get all the guys from the band in the studio at the same time. So it never happened. But they were big fans, yeah. And um, and it was great because that, that was another thing. Um, it's good about having what used to be the young bands, if you like. They're not a young band now, but they were for a while. And, they, you know, there were a, another generation of uh, rock band um, that come after us. And when they did uh, when they did cover um, Hair of the Dog, it was a good. It was a good for us as well because what happens is you, their fans, you know, their yes. fans, listen to you because you actually um, affected them. You know, you impress the, you impress their heroes, so they're going to check them out, aren't they? You know, uh, so of course we 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 picked up a lot of, a lot of uh, play because of, because of them covering the song. You know, and that happens. You know.
0: such a showman pete agnew there now you can hear him tell me all about the history of nazareth the stories behind the hits working with deep purples roger glover and much more on episode 16 so do please check that one out now speaking of checking things out make sure you subscribe to the vintage rock pod youtube channel too it's completely free you just need to press the big red subscribe button under one of the videos or on the page which is youtube.com forward slash vintage rock pod that's youtube.com forward slash vintage rock pod on there you'll see lots of videos from my interviews with the stars there's some full-length interviews there's some short stories like on today's episode there's additional things like the stars telling me their own favorite songs from their own back catalogs and my top five song suggestions from different bands too there's plenty on there for you to watch so if you subscribe to that you'll see the new videos on your front page when they get released again just search for vintage rock pod on youtube Now, back to today's stories then. And next up is a great one from John Parr. Now, he's probably best known for his worldwide smash hit in the 80s, St. Elmo's Fire Man in Motion. Now, speaking with John Parr was probably one of my favourite interviews to date, to be honest. He's a nice guy with an incredible career that does stretch much further beyond St. Elmo's Fire. He worked on a lot of huge Hollywood films. He was given his big break by Meatloaf, who took him to stay at his own home in Cincinnati with him. John wrote various songs for Meatloaf, and they released a duet together. John Parr also talks about his crazy court case that lasted 19 years, that meant he was unable to work and spiralled into debt. He won the court case, by the way. His sons uh, both became martial arts world champions as well. Honestly, it's an interview to definitely check out. But this clip that I'm going to play you now is him talking about a song that he wrote, a special song, to honour one of the world's greatest drummers, Keith Moon. Now, he wrote this song especially for Keith's former bandmate, Roger Daltrey, who recorded the song and named his solo album after it as well. So here's John Parr talking about Under a Raging Moon. Now, when you talk about songwriting and things like that, we'll move on to what you did with Roger Daltrey and the special, special song that you did uh, for him, um, the the tribute to Keith Moon, Under a Raging Moon. Now, how did all that come about?
5: Well, my manager for certainly those meteoric years was John Wolfe, who, you know, he, he started out as Keith's driver in the 60s. Wow. <laughs> and he ended up being manager. And he, he was still with them when they bought Shepparton Studios and it was a film studio, everything. So I think every Who story and every Moon story, I heard it from the horse's man <laughs> on all those millions of miles we travelled.
0: Yeah, he'll have plenty of stories to tell as well.
5: <laughs> yeah. And so I just thought, I want to write a real tribute to Keith and The Who, because they were so influential to so many people. I mean, they were a band that everybody was a frontman, weren't they? Everybody you looked at was just iconic. So I was writing with a girl called Julia Downs. We wrote some strong songs together. Ironically, it was written on the piano. Okay. And when you sing, you know, obviously the keyboard bit, but it's big guitars. It was written on the piano and um, just recorded it. And John sent it to Roger and Roger just said, man, I love it. You know, and, uh, I recorded it with him, sang in vocals. <laughs> then he asked me, would I do it at Madison Square Garden with him. Oh, So wow. we did it as a duet at Madison. <laughs> and it was, you know, I mean, I was a little boy. I used to get with my dad and watch Muhammad Ali, you know, in black and white at Madison Square Garden. And again, pinch yourself. You know, I'm there with Doltrue. Um, Empress was on stage. Yoko Ono, John's, uh, I, think, I don't think Julian was there. Sean was there. All these kind of uh, iconic people. You know it was just special and uh the song is really about Woodstock you know it's like uh, the helicopter coming down and all this crowd reaching up and I tried to capture it and I, I did in fact John Entwistle also recorded it I don't know if you know that yeah. story you know yeah, yeah John John wanted to do it at live aid and I guess yeah we got to play who songs you know <laughs> but what a, what a thing to again you, you couldn't write it It'd been Funny old career, you know, funny old career.
0: Absolutely. And just talk about the drummers that were involved in that song as well, because when they heard that, that it was going to be a tribute to Keith.
5: Oh, yeah. man. Everybody, you know, they all, all, the, all the kind of Copeland came down, Carl Palmer came down. A great story with uh, Cozy Powell. I don't know if I've told you the one. Cozy had this great big kit. It was all mic'd up. And he just walked in, sat on the drum stool, put his foot on the bass drum, and he just kicked the kit all over. <laughs> just kicked it. he went, I think Keith would have liked that. And that was Cozy's, you yeah. And we didn't ask. They kind of rang and said, "Look, we'd love to come and play." You know, and that was just, yeah. I mean, I I grew up listening to these guys' records. You know, and to be I love drummers anyway. And Keith, of course, was it was it wasn't it? Kind of there was Bonham and there was Move. You know, two very diverse characters, but very difficult for a drummer to kind of shine. Mm-hmm. You know, he's always great. Drummers like drummers, but these guys. Your mum's now is a kid. You know, that's iconic. When, when the man in the street now that say yeah, that's me
0: Absolutely fantastic story from John Parr there. And to reiterate, the drummers that played on Daltrey's version of that song in order of appearance on the track were Martin Chambers from The Pretenders, Roger Taylor from Queen, of course, Cozy Powell, the great Cozy Powell from so many bands, uh, Stuart Copeland of The Police, Ringo Starr's son and drummer with the Who in the 90s and Oasis and various others, Zach Starkey. There's Carl Palmer of... Emerson Lake and Palmer and Asia, as well as others, and Mark Brzezicki, who found fame with Big Country and has played with so many incredible artists as well. It was a fantastic lineup on that song, and it shows the esteem that Keith Moon was held in. Definitely check out episode 15 to hear the rest of the incredible interview with John Parr. Now it's time to hear from a man who had a huge hit in the 70s, number one in the UK, with Come Up and See Me, Make Me Smile. It is, of course, Mr. Steve Harley. Now, like John Parr, I've interviewed Steve a number of times from my days back in radio. Always a great guy to speak to, and the interview for episode 11 of Vintage Rock Pod was no different. Now, in this clip I'm going to play you, we're talking about his big hit song and how it was destined to greatness before it had even been fully finished. I remember when I spoke to you last time, you said that there was a story of when, I think when you would finished the mix or when it was just about finished, it was late one night and the managing director of EMI came in and, and had a listen and he was like, true. that's a hit. He said it straight away before it was even properly finished. Yeah, quite
6: true. It had finished, but it was a rough mix with no fade. Um, we put all those gaps in. He came yeah, you know, he came in, the managing director of EMI. We played it and he said, number one. And in those days, you know, when they said they could make you big hits. They really could. They knew how to work with shops. There was all kinds of sales techniques going on. You had to have the product. You couldn't make a piece of rubbish. When they had the product, like, what would they be thinking when they heard Bohemian Rhapsody? Could it be a hit? Sebastian wasn't. Long, mysterious. You know, nine months later, Bohemian Rhapsody, maybe I softened up the Radio 1 producers for it. I don't know. Those were special days, and that's the Make Me Smile story. It came out of adversity. I was kicked in the nuts by those three guys with a massive festival day, a tour of Europe to come up in the following year. And basically, I haven't stopped since. So was I concerned? Well, I was even back then at that age, a great fatalist. I'm quite religious, but I'm also a fatalist, oddly enough. And um, one door shuts. Hey, Sorry, platitudes, cliches. the only way to live i brought my two kids up thinking that way you've got to have positivity and confidence in yourself humility comes first humility but once you've learned that believe in yourself my dad you know i I lived on crutches until i was 16 and i went to ordinary normal schools i got tripped up in the playground playing football on crutches and the school watched it happen and it was fine because my dad said to me in front of them he'd say get up and get on. And that's the spirit of my life.
0: And you got up and you got on with it and you had yeah. your biggest hit. And I mean, how did it feel then when well, obviously everyone's telling you it's going to be number one, but that's one thing actually having the number one, how did that feel?
6: Well, we were in Los Angeles. Um, we just finished um, an American tour. We played two nights at the whiskey in LA and we were staying at the Chateau Marmont in Beverly Hills on Hollywood Boulevard. And, uh, my room's phone rang at three in the morning, which was 10 in the morning in the UK. And uh, it was man- it was the managing director himself, Bob Mercer. And I wasn't asleep. He knew I wouldn't be. <laughs> he knew we, li- we, were- we were quite nocturnal, I've got to tell you. He knew that.
0: Rock stars in the 70s, you all were. You're all nocturnal.
6: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 totally. And uh, so I answered it and he said, I told you, didn't I? What's that? Number one. Just like that, three weeks, it went 26-9-1. <clears throat> we were flying back the next day. It's all, all serendipity. We were f- flying back the, the next day to the UK, and uh, we arrived at Heathrow. We were taken straight by EMI and limousines to Wood Lane in West London, where the top of the Pops studios were, television studios we went to a five-star hotel in, in Kensington to, to, to chill out, to unwind, to try and get over a bit of jet <laughs> Then went to the TV studio and made our presentation at number one. Yeah, we, it was. I, I, we were young again. You know, I was 24 then, and um, you kind of take it in your stride. It was wonderful. We did celebrate, and we didn't think it was outright right by any means, but you kind of, you're young and you can rule the world. And we, we thought
0: we could. Steve Harley from Cockney Rebel fame, of course. He had so many other big hit singles as well in the UK. Mr Soft, Judy Teen and Here Comes the Sun were all top 10 hits. And he talks through his career on the full episode. Plus, he goes even deeper into Make Me Smile, like the story behind it and the fact that it was his bandmates, he felt, who tried to hold him to ransom and then left him. And that's what led to that massive song being written and going worldwide. He talks about the recording process in the Abbey Road studios of the song and the now iconic guitar solo, which is not quite what it seems. So definitely check out that interview on episode 11. But onto our last guest on this special Great Rock Stories Volume 2 episode, and it's another Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, a founding member of the brilliant Dire Straits. In this clip, I'm going to play you, Pick Withers talks about how Mark Knopfler asked him to join the band and how they finally achieved fame. But rather than here in the UK, it came in the US first. Here he is, Pick Withers. Just to begin with, how, how did you join Dire Straits? Because obviously your background with, with different bands and well, I touring Rod all over.
7: Through, through a mutual friend. Uh, I had been working with a guy called uh, Rab Noakes, who, you, who uh, we mentioned prior to the interview. And he was working with a guy called Rod Clements on bass. And uh, Rod had been in a group called Lindisfarne, big Geordie band. And uh, he introduced me to Cycow, who was a fellow member of Lindisfarne. And he had a big house in North London and he would rent rooms to musicians. And I was, quite, I was in London by this time, and I was just fed up with renting from landlords who were very unsympathetic towards musicians, or, you know, you couldn't really go about your daily business practising or whatever. It was, seen as a social, it was seen as a social misfit, really, in those days. So he rented me a room, and one day Mark came round because I had a reel-to-reel tape recorder, And he was wanted to, Mark wanted to put some ideas down. I happened to be in that day and I offered to put some uh, percussion hand type things, not a drum kit. Mm -hmm. That was it really. It was just what I would do in a normal course of events if there was anything going. And then he knocked on the door about six months later and said, oh, remember me? And I said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, I've got a band. Will you come and play with us? And I went down to Deptford and there was uh, John and uh, Mark's brother, David. And it kind of evolved out of that really. And that whole rehearsal structure culminated in making a, a demo, which I suggested we go to a park, place called Pathway to use, because it was cheap and had a good reputation. And then John had access to jo- Charlie Gillett, who's a disc jockey come rock and roll chronicler, who's very respected in, in the music business. Um, and he said, I, I think I can get Charlie Gillett to listen to this, which he duly did because he had a radio show at, at, in those times. Charlie did. But he was very cute. He said, Look, let's, um, thank you. I will listen to the tape. And he was very, the cute thing is this, and all people should bear this in mind. He said, I won't listen to it while you're here, but I, w- I do promise I will listen to it and I will give you a reaction. So mm-hmm. what he did, he, he did duly listen to the tape. What he didn't tell us um, was that he was so taken with the, Sultans, which was on the tape, that he and and the day we happened to visit him in his house, um, he was compiling his playlist and his timings to to make his ninety minute Sunday lunchtime program. And he said he spent a lot of the time rejigging his playlist in order to accommodate Sultans of Swing. And we didn't really uh, know any of this until it had already happened. And people, we I think we were out of town playing somewhere. And people said, oh, we heard you on the radio. I was thinking, well, that can't be true. But uh, so we phoned Charlie. Yeah, I played you. And he said, what's more, when I did play you, um, I got this reaction. And then and basically uh, an, artist, an uh, somebody from a record company phoned, some, uh, a lawyer phoned, and somebody, an agent phoned. And this kind of created like a, a snowball effect. We noticed that people, faces we didn't recognize were coming to gigs that we were playing at. And that culminated in a, in a recording contract for Phonogram. And then we made the, the first record, which was basically the backlog of Mark's best songs so far in his life, you know. Uh, and that just took off. It didn't take off immediately. In, in fact, in England, it was very hard to to get, get it away, so to speak. There were all kinds of yeah. obstacles. Radio wouldn't play it, said it was too long. <laughs> it was about 6 minutes 40. Mm-hmm. Um, other radio stations said, it, said it's too wordy, too many words, you know. Basically, what happened was the record began to sell in America, and there was a radio show in on Radio Two that actually played the top twenty or top forty even in America on Sunday. Okay, yeah, yeah. And and, uh, I think it was Paul Gambaccini or something like that played it. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, this LP we'd made, been out for ages in England, done nothing. It was in the charts in America, so they began to play it in this chart show format and all of a sudden the whole thing was broken open and, and people began to began to play it in England. They thought we were American. With the sultans, With the sultans of swing.
0: Pick with us there. Now, he's had such a varied career, as well as being in the brilliant Dire Straits, of course. He also recorded with the likes of Bob Dylan, among many others. Now, you can hear about that and how he first found fame, believe it or not, in a successful band over in Italy. And there's tales from his early 60s, where he played in Hamburg, just like the Beatles and many other British groups that went over there to perform and cut their teeth. That's all to be heard on episode 12 of Vintage Rock Pod. But you don't have to stop there, of course. There's so many great interviews with many other massive name rock stars across the whole series, with more big-name interview guests still to come. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on whatever podcast platform you use so you don't miss any more future episodes. Also, please check out Vintage Rock Pod on the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Give us a like or a follow. It'll be most appreciated. Well, that's it then. Until the next episode, remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care.
8: It's NFL Draft Season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.